Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Uh, looking today at uh, 1 Corinthians again, and we're going to chapter 9. The title I've chosen here, Authoritarianism versus Christian Authority. And the way I'm reading chapter 9, it's not a departure from Paul's point in chapter 8 that the strong need to forego their rights, and, and Paul's going to outline his rights here. They need to sacrifice their rights or their, their power so as to build up the weak. This was the issue with eating meat. And so he, in the chapter that we're going to read, we'll read from 1 to 12, he establishes the fact that as an apostle, he has the right to receive support from the Corinthians. And then he explains that he has sacrificed this right. In fact, he'll go through several rights, that he has the right to have a wife, that he has you know, a series of things that he could demand, but he's relinquishing those demands. And my understanding is that he's modeling in himself the same point that he's given us in chapter 8, of how his apostolic authority, you know, it's a case in point of how the strong should act in regard to the weak. And at the same time, I think we're given a picture of how authority in the church is to be constituted. And then in the, what Paul calls the super apostles, how it's not to be constituted. So let's read together from chapter 9, verse 1 to 12. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you yourselves not my workmanship in the Lord? Even if I am not an apostle to others, surely I am to to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who scrutinize me. Have we no right to food and to drink? Have we no right? To take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or are Barnabas and I the only apostles who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Who tends a flock and does not drink of its milk? Do I say this from a human perspective? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Isn't he actually speaking on our behalf? Indeed, this was written for us, because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they should also expect to share in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much for us to reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right to your support, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not exercise this right. Instead, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. And so there's two ways of reading Paul's opening in this chapter. You know, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? They certainly, these questions certainly indicate Paul's strength of feeling. But is 
his indignation here a reaction, and this is what many claim, about those who would cast doubt on his apostleship? Or is this Paul demonstrating that he also could act on the basis of rights? That is, is this a continuation of his indignation as he gives it in chapter 8, verse 12, against those who would sin against Christ and cause a brother's or sister's downfall? That is, by acting according to their rights, by claiming to act on the basis of rights, freedom, knowledge. This has been the discussion up to this point. In other words, the key sentences are, I believe, we did not exercise this right. We put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. And so Paul in chapter 8 has asked the strong to relinquish their right in regard to eating meat in the temple. And now Paul applies this issue to himself. That is, he establishes his rights and then he renounces them. Do we not have a right to eat? Do we not have a right to take a believing wife? Do we not have a right? And he says, okay, we have these rights, but that's not the way we're going to act. We're not acting as on the basis of this sort of authority. And so it's as if he parodies the impatient, the self-confident, the self-affirmation of the strong in this string of questions of the kind you know, that they are no doubt firing at the weak or insecure. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And so I believe he is not appealing to his authority so as to lord it over them or even try to get them to do what he's saying. I believe that he's modeling what he wants them to do in regards to authority. If you're going to exercise authority, here's the way to do it. He's modeling what Christ did. He's attempting to model an alternative mode of power and leadership. But I'm uh, afraid that in our reading of chapter 9, we've missed this. And then the older, more traditional view, it's imagined that Paul wants to establish his authority so they will do what he tells them to. That is, that chapter 9 is read in isolation from chapter 8, as if Paul is making an appeal you know, to his an apostolic authority. And so while he is establishing his, his authority, I believe rather that he's in fact posing a very different sort of authority. He is saying, yes, this is who I am. I am an apostle. But here's the way authority functions. And unfortunately, I'm afraid that we may have such a weak understanding of what this sort of authority looks like that we miss it. Now, authority is a, a necessary uh, factor in shaping our lives. And where this authority is misused, where it's misdirected, misunderstood, and isn't that just the universal predicament, that, that it's always happened this way. And then it warps us accordingly. And so we are all ushered into this world under failed regimes of social power that Paul calls the principalities and powers. And this is the very point of Christianity. This is the point of being adopted into a new family, becoming citizens of a new kingdom in which authority is going to function very differently. The kingdoms of this world have a very different conception of how to utilize power and authority. 
I don't know if you know the social commentator Noam Chomsky, but he's described it this way, that every government has a need to frighten its population. And one of the ways that it does this is to shroud its workings in mystery. And he traces the history of this. The idea behind royalty was that there is this other species of individuals who are beyond the norm and who the people are not supposed to understand. And that's the standard you know, way you cloak and protect your power. You make it look mysterious and secret above the ordinary person. Otherwise, why would people accept your authority? Well, they're willing to accept it out of fear that some great enemies are about to destroy them, and because of that, they'll cede their authority. You know, this is always the danger in our political system. Oh, we're in an emergency situation. We have to suspend the powers. And so people will cede their authority to the king, the president, just to protect themselves. I believe that what Chomsky's describing is right. I believe that that's the way governments work, that's the way that human systems of power work, and I believe that Paul, the essence of apostleship, is precisely not this mysterious, different species kind of power. His apostleship is based on the witnessing the raised Christ. Have I not seen the Lord? He says that. And apostles then are windows on God's design. That is, they're transparent through a transparent window through which to see Christ. The point is not to create a mysterious power. Christ and Paul are precisely refusing the mode of authority based on mystery. Paul, you know, is explaining, he's arguing, he's pleading his case, the very mode of letter writing, speaking, sharing. This is not a mode of authoritarianism, but it's a means of nurturing agency as Paul has experienced it. He is always inviting the Corinthians, that is. He's always inviting us to the table to talk, to share a perspective. The signs of the apostle entail visibly sharing in the suffering and death of Christ, not in exhibiting miracles. And this is what the super apostles are going to say about Paul. Not in demonstrations of power, they're going to say, oh, this Paul, he's a weak man. Not in this, you know, sort of arrogance, but in modeling humility. And this humility is a world-changing sort of, of leadership. And so the authoritarians, they issue edicts, they bully, they frighten, they threaten. But they do not presume to have to make their case to argue as Paul does, to defend their status. They certainly do not imagine they would defend their position, only to relinquish it. That's what Paul's doing, right? Especially in regard to money, they especially would not do that. So Christ did not create a monarchy, a hierarchy, a dictatorship, or even a fellowship on this sort of authoritarian regime of power. He takes up the cross. He washes the disciples' feet. He's the servant of all, and I believe that's what Paul is demonstrating. We'll read here in a minute, 920. That is, this is the model of leadership and the mode of power that Paul is calling the Corinthians, and he's calling all of us to imitate. The power to serve, the power to identify directly 
with the disempowered, the weak. That's what Paul is saying. To forego one's rights on behalf of the weak. Paul is simply modeling what Christ modeled. Money, I believe, is a direct correlate of power. And though Paul says, I have the right to receive money from you, as a, a means of displaying the paradigm of leadership, you know, apostolic leadership, he's doing manual labor. He's making tents. And the Corinthians find this humiliating. They're going to mention this specifically in 2 Corinthians. In comparison to these super apostles, this is shameful. And this explains why Paul is compelled, I believe, to answer their criticisms. They say he's weak. They say he's cowardly. They say he somehow lacks apostolic power, that he refuses to accept support from the Corinthians. He continues to work at a trade. You know, think of these elites in Corinth, these super wealthy people. And here is their teacher, their apostle, and they find him in the market doing manual labor, making tents. And so they are saying that in their view, Paul denigrates his apostleship. He's bringing shame to them because of the way he exercises his authority. And of course, the point is that Christians are to be nurtured. Christians are to be discipled, guided into being image bearers, which requires real world models. We have to see this, and this is what Paul is doing. And maybe here is the rub for all of us how to exercise authority in a Christian manner, I think it's almost the same thing as what it means to be a Christian. The fall of man, after all. People have an authority problem. Sin is a problem with authority. The problem of the law, our, re our orientation to the law. And so if we miss the question of authority, I'm afraid we've really missed Christianity. The abuse of authority and power today in the church seems to have reached epidemic proportions. The endless scandals, and I'll just mention, you know, the, the maybe the most famous of the mega church preach preachers was Bill Hybels. He and his entire staff at Willow Creek have stepped down following a, a sex scandal. And of course, you could just add up, you could just continue going. There is an entire, you know, there was the hashtag Me Too movement of people who had been sexually abused. There's now the hashtag Church Too movement for victims of evangelical church abuse. I believe this indicates the pervasive authority problem of misuse of authority. And it's not simply, I believe, clergy sex scandals, or maybe, you know, the Episcopalians have a, a peculiar way they call it, impaired communion, the inability to line up doctrine and authority. But I believe even our ideal notions of authority are problematic. And these public failures are indicative that the ideals of leadership are themselves, they're, they're flawed. You know, the, the megachurch model, the, the whole notion of what a success would look like, it continues to produce abusive authoritarians. And these successful pastors, they only fall under scrutiny when they take the notions of leadership, the very notions which have gained them numbers and prominence and very often wealth, they take it to extremes, but they're simply following the blueprint 
for the marketing of the church as outlined by Donald McGavran and Peter Wagner, which focuses, you know, this is the church growth movement, which focuses on centralized leadership. I'm afraid this marketing and management plan has displaced the priority of theology. One of these guys has said, oh, I don't deal with theology. I'm simply a methodologist. But of course, that is his theology. Methodology and technique are at the center. They're in control. And they constitute a kind of orientation, a theology. And the technique, certainly it, it works, depending on what you mean works. It works to gain numbers. It works, you know, the, it's successful according to our culture. And the sign of success, of course, is the number of people, which, of course, is already a sign of a failure, a theological failure. And so the church growth movement that has just swept every form of Protestantism, it comes out of a missionary experience, McGavern's missionary experience in India, and I believe his experience flows out of another missionary presumption. It's called contextualization. There is the obvious need, you know, when you translate the Bible to adjust biblical idioms and language to fit the linguistic context. We need to do that, but sometimes this idea has been, I believe, erroneously extended so that we contextualize the entire presentation of the gospel. The danger in contextualization is to presume that the culture is a stable factor. It's determinative of meaning rather than flawed, right? And failed. And so the horizon of the gospel can become isolated from the culture. It doesn't speak to the culture. Uh, and the horizon of scripture is in some way the two things are uh, isolated from one another. And if the culture is the determiner of meaning and value, then of course there is the danger that the gospel simply complies to the cultural norms. I'm afraid that's what we're seeing. There's no mystery here because that's precisely what Donald McGavern said to do. We need to contextualize our notion of leadership. That's what the Corinthians are doing. They're contextualizing. They're saying, Paul, we need a different kind of leader. You're not living up to our notion of a leader. I believe this results in a, in a static notion of both the gospel and culture, one's reading of scripture, that it is not, we don't read the culture in this sense through the interpretive lens of, of scripture. And so the problem with contextualization, especially on this issue of authority, on the issue of church growth, is it privileges cultural notions of leadership that are subverting the gospel. And this can be demonstrated. You know, what is the proof text? It's here in 1 Corinthians. Look at verse 22 of chapter 9. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. Church growth advocates presume that this text means that we must adjust to the times. We must be innovative. We must do what is effective. We must do niche marketing. We need to have an audience-driven service. We need a seeker-friendly service under a forceful CEO kind of leader. And of course, the context of the passage is precisely not that. The passage pertains 
certainly to authority and to leadership, but Paul is not arguing that the Corinthians should utilize their cultural norms to maximize their leadership potential. He's arguing that they need to give up on their notions, their cultural notions of what effective leadership is. Rollo May in his book, uh, Power and Innocence, A Search for the Sources of Violence. He goes through and lists all the kinds of authority we might have. He has five things. He says there's exploitative power. This kind of authority employs force or the threat of violence so that it leaves the other with no choice but to comply. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, oh, you're super apostles. They even slap you in the face and you like it. They publicly humiliate you. Number two, manipulative power. Uses the covert methods of the con man. The super apostles are rhetoricians. They're persuasive. They have an elegance of speech. Number three, competitive power. Employs I win, you lose sort of strategy. And of course, anytime we're talking about a numerical or quantifiable notion of success, this is precisely what's described. Number four is nutrient power, which may sound less benign, but actually it, it can be quite harmful. Uh, it's likened to a parent's care for a child in that it is ex exercised on behalf of another's welfare, and it can create dependency. And I'm thinking here, especially in Japan, it is a culture of dependency. And very often in the church, this culture is encouraged rather than challenged. And so in the two letters to Corinth, it's clear that Paul's rivals, the super apostles, they are exploitative, they are manipulative, they are competitive in their use of power. Paul says you enslave, devour, you seek to gain control, you put on airs. Now I don't know if he's metaphorically saying, but he says they even slap you in the face. Certainly they publicly insult you. And the Corinthians not only have submitted themselves to these authoritarian apostles, this domination uh, by these men. But they figure Paul does not live up to the standard of an apostle. He doesn't compare. He's not what they would consider an effective leader. And Paul then, what is I think he's doing is trying to develop a very different set of values in regard to leadership. So if we had to identify, I didn't tell you the fifth in May's fifth notion of a leader, it's called integrative power. This works with others instead of on them to enable them to grow both mentally and spiritually and to uh, abet their power, that is to increase their own power. And so Paul is employing and developing, I believe, this integrative notion. He says, we work with you for your joy. And the concentration of his explanation is right here. Let me read on down in chapter 9, verse 21. To those without the law, I became like one without the law. Though I am not outside the law of God, but am under the law of Christ, to win those uh, without the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some of them. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel so that I may share in its blessings. Paul has become the servant of all like Christ. He's not describing some sort of manipulative methodology. 
Paul is attempting to model an alternative mode of power. An alternative mode of leadership that I'm afraid we miss in our common readings of, of chapter 9. Maybe because of our own cultural influence, our own contextualization of the gospel. The signs of the apostle, according to Paul, are sharing in the suffering and death of Christ. And this is why he says enduring weakness is his point of strength. He's living out a kind of cruciform agency. And this is precisely what's unpleasing to the Corinthians. And so what you could do, take all of their critiques of Paul. He's weak, he's cowardly, he lacks apostolic power, he works at a trade, he, in their view, denigrates his apostleship, he brings shame on them. I think this is clear evidence that Paul is not a CEO, power ministry or power minister of miracles. Paul walks, they say, according to the flesh. Paul's adversaries, you know, considered him a worldly man because he does not have visions. He does not have ecstatic experiences. Maybe because he does not behave in the authoritarian manner, the self-assertive way that could be ascribed, you know, to the spiritual authorities that they're familiar with. And so the basic point of contention in their accusations of his weakness and worldliness is how Paul exercises authority. But I think the basic contention in the whole New Testament is how we exercise authority. In 1 Corinthians, Paul appeals to weakness, and that's what he's doing here. I become weak. I become the servant of all. And they're saying, how can one so weak discharge the functions of, of an apostle? He's modeling humility, self-abasement, relinquishing of rights. And this is the Christian mode of authority. I came to you in weakness, he says, with great fear and trembling. Two, three. We are fools for Christ. But you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. 4.10. And then in 9.22, to the weak I became weak. And so in comparison to the super apostles, Paul appears too weak to be effective. I'm afraid he wouldn't make a very good megachurch preacher. They would have Paul, I think, be a super apostle, a megachurch preacher kind of guy, but he eschews this glory for what he describes as a cruciform leadership. In other words, I think the furthest thing from Paul's notion of a leader would be ornamental robes, signet rings, crowns, royal colors, the presentation of power as we normally think of it. He's not a rhetorician. He's not a flamboyant preacher. He's not an arrogant CEO sort of bishop. Paul asserts his authority for building up the Christian community. That's his only concern. And that, I believe, is the only way that authority should be employed in the church to build up the community of Christ. And so Paul does not wish to strengthen his authority. I think that's to misread chapter 9. He's not going to hold his authority over the Corinthians, but he's, he's doing this only to strengthen their grip on the gospel of their faith, on, on you know, their own understanding. And the Corinthian letters illustrate this fact as Paul disarms his readers. He acknowledges his weaknesses, and this works on their consciences so that they might see, I think, the truth about him and his rivals. 
He's asserting his authority in a way, but not in the way that they would imagine. It is the nature, I believe, of the apostolic gospel and the apostolic authority behind it that is at stake here. Paul defends his reputation for the good of the community as much as for his reputation. So my conclusion here, one wonders, just wondering, if Paul's critique of the Corinthians might be directly leveled at some contemporary notions of successful church leadership. They are guilty of disobedience, he says, comparing and commending themselves unduly. They are ignorant of the true source of authority, the Lord. They are seducing Christians as Satan did Eve. They're preaching another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. They're boasting unduly. Could it be that in privileging our culture's notion of successful leaders that we have also to do with false apostles, deceitful workers, emissaries of Satan who have only disguised themselves as apostles of Christ? To become a leader in the mold of Paul will probably not result in admiration the admiration of our culture and the admiration it gives to notable preachers and leaders. But maybe it's this very lack of recognition, the failure to live up to the values of the culture that is step one in the pursuit of authentic Christian leadership. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.